imagine I'm a parent, and, and I, I just, it, let's hypothetically, some hypothetical parent, not me, because this is horrible. Uh, but maybe a parent moves into the, the northern, you know, into the Rochester area, never lived in snow, ice, anything like that. And remember, I'm sure you do, what was it, two weeks ago, we had the, the polar vortex, whatever we called it, freezing cold. Uh, and, and I just decide as a parent, I want to send my kids outside to play. They, they need to get outside and play, but I want them to keep warm. So I want to prepare my kids. And I think oatmeal, oatmeal's good. Hearty breakfast. This will kind of warm them from the inside out, prepare them to go outside and play. That's, that's wonderful. Now, I'm seeing on the news, again, I'm new to the north, seeing on the news, you know, skin temperature, you know, how quickly skin freezes and all the dangers of playing out in the cold. And I think, I don't want that to happen to my kids. They'll, they'll freeze. I don't want my kids to freeze. At the same time, I'm learning to take care of my car. Don't want my car to freeze. Well, there's this wonderful product called antifreeze, and you put it in the car, and it keeps the car from freezing. And as a parent, I think, hey, I don't want my kids to freeze. I'll just take a little antifreeze, put it in the oatmeal, keep them from freezing. Yeah, you see why this is horrible. <laughs> just, I'll just take my foot right now and put it in my mouth. Okay. But in many ways, how you felt in that moment when I said that is perfect, because that's exactly the point of where we're going with this. That is not a good thing to add to oatmeal to protect your kids. In fact, not only is it not good, but by adding that to oatmeal, in case you're wondering, I'm pretty sure that would kill the children, okay? Let's just be clear. Nobody go home. Pastor said we should do... No, don't do this. Antifreeze is a poison. If you add that to the oatmeal or to anything, if you feed antifreeze to anybody, it could kill them. Don't do it, okay? You can't... Just add something toxic to something good and expect something good to come out of it. It destroys the goodness of the thing that you're adding it to. My point here is that that's what Paul is dealing with in the book of Galatians. And so today we're talking about avoid artificial preservatives. I cannot wait to see the number of people that listen to this sermon online expecting to find something completely different. Okay? This isn't about food at all. No, it's really not. Avoid artificial preservatives. You see, the people that Paul was dealing with had this idea that they were preserving the gospel. We will help protect the gospel by adding all these things to it. And that will help people out. And Paul steps into that situation and says, not only are you not helping, but you are destroying the gospel that rescues us. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. We're looking at Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul continues in this passage to tell his story, a little bit about his background. Uh, We spoke last week about how he came to know Jesus as his Savior. He's continuing now into some of his early years of ministry. And as he describes his interactions between the leadership uh, himself and the leadership of the church in Jerusalem, we get a picture of what he was fighting for, what he was fighting against, and why this is so important for us to avoid adding anything artificial to the gospel today. Now, I feel like I have to give, I don't know if it's a disclaimer, but maybe just a sub, a, a little footnote. Don't tune out. I know 
as we talk about this, hey, don't add anything to gospel, keep the gospel pure. It's easy to think, oh, this is just some theological sermon and this doesn't really apply to me. We all do this. We all in our own heads and in our own hearts are constantly tempted to add to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may not be sitting down and writing a a theological textbook and adding some sort of doctrine in, but practically speaking, philosophically speaking, we all have a tendency to do this. So we need to listen to what Paul is talking about here so that we don't add any artificial preservatives to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's start in verses 1 through 5 where Paul looks at some dangers. What is the danger he was facing, the danger he was speaking against? Galatians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So here Paul is talking about preserving the gospel. At the same time, he's talking about don't add anything to the gospel to preserve it. You see the difference? The gospel is powerful on its own. We cannot add anything to it to help it out. So what's the situation here? It's been about 17 years since Paul has received Jesus as his Savior. That moment, uh, in case you're not familiar with Paul's story, he was completely against the church, completely against Jesus, was strong in his Jewish faith, his Jewish traditions, wanted to purify the Jewish people, get rid of anything that was out of line with his Jewishness. And so he would go around arresting Christians. And one day, he's on his way to a city, and Jesus appears to him. The Jesus he knows was killed horrifically on a cross, which in the Jewish mindset showed that this person was absolutely hated by God. Nothing good could come of anybody on a cross. And yet... He also believed that only the righteous were raised to new life. And so here, this Jesus is alive and appearing to him, and his theology is clashing inside of him, and he has to realize that everything Jesus said and did is true. He must truly be the Son of God. And so he goes off, and he spends time studying and and understanding how this fits in with everything he's ever taught, everything he's ever learned. In this particular trip to Jerusalem, he takes a guy named Titus with him. And the text tells us Titus is a Gentile. That's important. The early or the world of the early church was divided generally into two people groups. You have the Jewish population. These were the descendants of Abraham, the physical descendants of Abraham, as well as the spiritual descendants of Abraham. They were, for the most part, one and the same. And God had given them a sign, and and you've got to be careful here. He he had given them a physical sign of the physical descendants of Abraham that was to be put so that every generation was reminded, you come from the covenant-keeping group of the people of God. And that's what circumcision was. It was the ongoing mark 
physically, specifically on the male body, that you were part of the covenant people of God. And they prided themselves because in order to be in a relationship with God, you had to come into that people group. That's what God had said. They weren't making that up. God had said that. He had given them that in the law. Later, they come to realize all of this was pointing to the fact of being prepared for the Messiah to come. Well, Titus is not Jewish. He's Gentile. That's the other major people group. And it's, it's kind of a general term because it's anybody that wasn't Jewish. Didn't matter if you were from Asia, if you were from, uh, you know, one of the barbarian tribes, if you were Roman, if you were of Greek background, you were a Gentile. You were not Jewish. You were a Gentile. The Gentiles didn't have the Old Testament law. That, that hadn't been taught to them. They might have been familiar with it. Titus specifically had never converted to being Jewish. He'd never come under the Old Testament law. He had received Jesus as his Savior without ever becoming Jewish first. I'm not sure we can understand just what a powder keg Jerusalem was at this time. And how bringing someone like Titus into the situation was like lighting a match there. The potential for a devastating effect was huge. For a Gentile to claim to have a relationship with God was so offensive to the Jewish mindset. And now some of these Jewish people had become Christians, but they couldn't let go of that way of thinking. Wait, you can come to God straight through his son, Jesus Christ? And the gospel answer is yes, absolutely. You don't have to come through that old door. You come straight through Jesus Christ. And so Paul is taking Titus into Jerusalem. And he's curious what's going to happen. How are these Christian leaders in Jerusalem going to receive Titus? How are they going to receive Paul when he brings them in? What are they going to make Titus do? Are they going to make him jump through some hoops in order to have a relationship with God? Paul gives a reason for the journey. He says he received revelation. We don't know what it is. Something, somehow, God communicated with Paul. Hey, go to Jerusalem. It also says at the end of verse 2 that he goes to tell the other apostles that had stayed in Jerusalem what gospel he was preaching. Hey guys, just so you know, this is what I'm going around preaching. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. You you are saved straight through Jesus. You don't have to become Jewish. You don't have to be circumcised. You can be saved by Jesus Christ. And he says, I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. What's he concerned about there? One possibility is that Paul's concerned that he's wrong. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm messing this whole gospel thing up. Maybe they're right and I'm wrong. That's a possibility, but I don't think it's true. In fact, I don't think it can be true. Paul had no doubt about the gospel that he was teaching. When he says, I wanted to be sure that I hadn't run my race in vain, he's not saying, hey, I'm just going to check my gospel with these Jewish leaders to make sure I'm right. What he wants to know is, am I preaching one truth and they're preaching another? Is the church in danger of being split? Church throughout the ages is always in danger of being split by the ideas of people. Sometimes well-intentioned, sometimes not so much. And it is a dangerous thing to allow something to come in and distort the gospel of Jesus Christ and then a fracture occur in the church so that the church goes in separate directions. Paul wants to know, 
are these Jewish leaders holding to the same gospel that I am? Is there a separate Jewish church and a Gentile church, or are they truly one? Now again, I think it's hard for me to preach this because I don't think we can really conceive of how important this answer was. For Paul, if there was not one gospel, one way of salvation, there was no gospel at all. And so he wanted to know, do these guys agree with me? We also know that he took this trip, as verse 4 says, some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. So here's the other point. Some false teachers had come in. And he uses some interesting words here. The, the word for infiltrated is the same word that would be used for like an undercover enemy spy coming into your army, to your camp, to cause trouble. We know from chapter 1 and the rest of the book that these people were teaching, you should believe in Jesus. Yes, Jesus is good, but you should also believe these other things. You should also do these really good acts. If you don't do these acts, you're not saved. You have to believe in Jesus and do these ritual things, otherwise you are not saved. And that was not Paul's gospel. You were saved simply by believing in Jesus Christ. Certainly a change of actions and attitudes would come out of that, but that was not what caused you to be saved. In some sense, these false teachers that were infiltrating were trying to add things to the gospel to preserve it, but were actually destroying it. And what's the danger here? What is the danger? I mean, really, is it that big a deal? As long as it helped people, as long as it kept them, made them happy, as long as it helped them to get by in their life, is this really that big of a deal? You know, we might look at this as, well, you could add maple syrup to oatmeal, or you could add brown sugar, or if you're like my kids, you add both. Uh, you know, I mean, really, it doesn't matter. Whatever makes you happy. And that's how we look at these things. That's how our world looks at these things. Paul says, uh-uh, wrong picture. These are not minor additions. These are not just different flavors. This is something that is being added that is destroying the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what's at stake here. He calls these teachers false believers. They're not even true believers. They think that they're saved. They think they're teaching the gospel. They are not. In fact, in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 that we looked at a while ago, He says to the Gentiles, I am astonished, this is chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And then it's almost like Paul catches himself or he wants to explain, which is really no gospel at all. Because it's not just some other alternative, maybe even some lesser alternative. He says, no, this is the anti-gospel, the destruction of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And back in our text, look at what they're doing. He says these people infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ. They see what we have in Christ. We are set free by Jesus Christ. And then he says, and to make us slaves. Slaves. Could you imagine a group of slaves set free? They've come out of slavery. They're absolutely free. They're the future ahead of them. Somebody comes in and says, oh yeah, and I want to help you. I'm going to 
help you to go further in this freedom. And they start leading them, and the slaves start following. And they take them right back to their master, right back to the slave owner, and deliver them right back into slavery. That's what Paul's saying these people are doing. It is no small thing. This is the danger of adding to the gospel. The gospel sets us free. The gospel is the good news that God sent his son to die on the cross in our place. And that through him, our sins are forgiven once and for all. Perfectly, eternally, we are set free in Jesus Christ. When we add, or somebody else adds, other thing to that gospel of freedom, they twist it, distort it, destroy it, and it turns into a gospel, not of freedom, but of slavery. Look at how Paul responds in verse 5. We did not give in to them for a moment. I think there's a lot of weight in that phrase. Paul was constantly under pressure to change what he taught. Constantly under pressure to change his language, change what he did, change the gospel, change how he was a missionary for the gospel. Paul, don't say it that way, say it this way. Let's just change. Yeah, Paul's right, but also this. Constant pressure on Paul. And I wonder those times, maybe at night after a long day of ministry, if he had ever just had some inkling in his head of, wouldn't it be easier if? You ever feel that way as a Christian? There's constant pressure from our society, from our world. Just, just that, okay, you want to be a Christian, that's good, but don't say that. Just change that. Don't talk about that. Jesus is a way. That's fine, but don't say Jesus is the only way. That's offensive. And it's tempting to just give in in little bits. Okay, I'll just, I'll just say it different so I can avoid the argument. I remember once, I think I've talked about this, reading a report from a missionary doing a translation in the Arab world. It was so offensive to say that Jesus was the Son of God. So they took out any reference to Jesus being the Son of God. And I thought, you just destroyed the truth about Jesus Christ because you didn't want to offend. There are aspects of the gospel that are offensive to those that want to hold on to their own way of thinking and their own sinfulness. But when we lose that, we lose the rescue. The whole point of the gospel is to rescue. Not to feel better, it's to rescue. And so Paul says, I would not give in to them even for a moment. He knew what was at stake. Paul didn't care about his reputation. He didn't care about his comfort. He didn't care about his ministry in the sense of, I want to do this for a long time. I want to enjoy it. I want to have fun. No, Paul cared about the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that truth alone can rescue people from their sins. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verses, or verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. Paul wasn't preserving the gospel because it was fragile, because it couldn't stand on its own, because it needed us to lovingly coddle it. He was preserving the truth of the gospel because he knew it was powerful. And if we change it in any way, shape, or form, it loses its Power. He said, I want you to know that power. Don't settle for something less. So how do we avoid this danger? 
I said earlier that we're all tempted to do it whether we recognize it or not. How do we avoid the danger of adding things to the gospel? We need to make sure that we're holding on to the true gospel. We need to constantly check what we think, what we believe, what we teach, what we proclaim, what we display in our lives against the true gospel. And Paul mentions a few things that happen in this situation, three specific things. So let's look at verses 6 through 10. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. The first thing that Paul points out here in recognizing and holding on to the one true gospel is to understand that there is only one true gospel. The moment we start saying, the gospel is good and you could also believe these things, or it's just one thing among many, we have destroyed the true gospel of Jesus Christ. The Christian faith, at its heart and soul, proclaims that either the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved, or it is no way at all. And the moment we start distorting that and thinking there is any other way of salvation is the moment we have lost the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you might be saying, wait a minute, this is just about Paul interacting with these leaders. Where are you getting this from? Let me show you. Look at how he talks about the leaders in Jerusalem. In in verses 1 through 5 that we talked about a little bit ago, he, he was very... I think friendly with them and talked about how he came alongside them and, and they spoke to him and, and they received him. And now it's almost like he's talking about them like he doesn't care about them, like he doesn't respect them. The, understand what he's doing. On the one hand, he's saying, we are preaching the same gospel. That was verses 1 through 5. But the other thing these false teachers were saying was the Jerusalem church has all the authority. That's where it all started. That's where James is. That's where Peter is. That's where these apostles still remain. They have all the authority. Paul is under their authority. He has to do what they say. They're saying there's one group or even maybe one individual, human authority, that represents God on this earth. There are still those that call themselves Christians, that speak that truth today. That's where Paul's coming from here. He says they're, they're held to be in high esteem. He says, but whatever they were makes no difference to me. He's not insulting them, but he's saying, I'm not under their authority. We're all under the same authority. And then he says, God does not show favoritism. He says, look, there's no second-rate Christian in the kingdom. It's not that Paul is higher up and, and, and we're somewhere below and Peter and John are up here and we have to rank all the Christians. He's like, we're all equally sinners. There's no difference. And if you're saved by Jesus Christ, we're all his favorites. 
There's no ranking in the kingdom. There is only one way of salvation. And it's not a contest about who can be better than somebody else. Specifically, he's making the point that the Jewish people are not more favored by God than the Gentiles now. That it is through Jesus Christ that all people can be saved. Now, as I say that, I know somebody's going to hear, he's anti-Semitic. For God so loved the world. God's not against the Jewish people. That's not what I'm saying. But he's not looking at a Jew and a Gentile and going, well, you're Jewish, I'll let you in. No, no. He's looking at both of them saying, do you believe in Jesus Christ? There's no favoritism. And, and here's the blessing of that. Some of you were raised in the church. I was raised in the church. Wonderful blessing. Profoundly grateful for the things I was taught, for the experiences I had. Youth group, small group Bible studies, Sunday school teachers, good teachers in the pulpit, mother and father who believed in Jesus Christ. Profoundly grateful for those blessings. Some of you came to faith, maybe recently. Maybe you had never heard the Bible before that. Maybe you didn't care about God. Maybe you were angry at Him. Maybe you have a a, a past history that, that you are ashamed to tell anybody. God doesn't like me more than you. We're all equal. There's the blessing. God has no favorites. The answer is, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? The big church today, no more favored by God than the small church. The white church, no more favored by God than the minority churches. The rich church, no more favored by God than a poor church. God has no favorites because there is only one gospel. That's what's at the heart and soul of everything. We mistakenly believe And here's where we get to how we think and how we act. We mistakenly believe, I think, practically, without even realizing it, that there is a slightly different gospel for a different culture, a different church, different economic standing. We twist it and distort it just a little bit. We are saved only by Jesus Christ. There are no favorites And frankly, this is why I truly believe to the core of my being, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only hope of unity in this world, period. Not who's in the White House. Not what laws are passed. Not what such social justice programs we do. Jesus Christ is the only hope of unity Look at verses 7 and 8. So he says there is no favoritism because there's only one gospel. But then it's almost like it seems like he's going to backtrack from that. Verses 7 and 8, on the contrary, they, the leaders in Jerusalem, recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, and they to the the Jewish people. So now he said there's one gospel, but now he's saying, but I have a different ministry than them. And this, I believe is a second mark of the true gospel. The first is there is only one gospel. The second is, but the true gospel is lived out in different ways. 
Different missions, different ministries, different strengths, different weaknesses. Paul was a missionary to the Gentiles. Peter was a missionary to the Jewish people. But they looked at each other and said, we have the same gospel. What you're doing, Paul, is good. And Paul says to Peter, what you're doing is good. What we want to do today, this is, I, oh, I hear this all the time. Man, the church down the street is doing this. We have to do that too. Praise God that the church down the street is doing that. It doesn't mean we have to do it too. Every church is going to be a little bit different. We want to compare and we want to rank, in which case we need to go back to number one. There's only one true gospel. But there are going to be different ways of ministering, different ways of serving. And we need to uphold one another in that, encourage one another, that the true gospel will be shown in very different ministries, different ways of living it out, as long as they are all holding to the one true gospel. I think often we can compare among people as well. I could never get up in front of people like so-and-so. I, I, maybe some of you, you hear the story of the loft houses. This is so cool. And some of you might think, well, I could never do that. And so sometimes we compare to make ourselves feel better. Sometimes we compare to put ourselves down. Or, or maybe to make an excuse. Well, they're good at that. And they're good at that. And I'm just me. Oh, no. If the gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ, then that's what you believe. And it is powerful that it is at work in you and God has equipped you to serve in some way, shape, or form. Don't just sit there and say, I can't serve like so-and-so. Find a way to serve. Find a way to be a missionary in your situation. It doesn't have to look like so-and-so. Maybe God doesn't want it to look like them because he's called you to something different. The third thing. True, the true gospel must be on display in the church, the gathered body of Jesus Christ. The church is the crucible. It's, it's the refining fire. It's, it's the demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ and all of the messiness and struggles of, of wrestling with the grace of God and applying it to our lives and dealing with our own sin and the sins of those around us and showing the grace that we pray we have understood the grace that God has given us. It's in those relationships that the gospel is displayed. It makes my heart sick when there are times, and I feel like Christianity goes through this ebb and flow, that, that people say, oh, I just, I've, I've given up on the church, but not on Jesus. Man, Jesus never gives up on the church. And, and if you think you can give up on the church, but not on Jesus, I'm not sure you completely understand Jesus. There is a clear partnership in this passage, in verses 9 and 10, between these very different leaders. Paul's not coming in and chastising them that they're not going to the Gentiles. They're not chastising Paul for not going to the Jews. There's this partnership within the church. And here I'm saying church big C because Paul was planting several smaller churches, individual churches. There's a church in Jerusalem, but they're all part of the one church. And they're all linking arms and saying, we're in this together. That's a display of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The true gospel should be, must be demonstrated between individual churches in common ministry and mission. I've shared with you before, I have 
a wonderful privilege of meeting together with some other pastors in the Greece area. We get together and study God's word, pray together. We, we read through a book together. It's just a, a wonderful time. Some great guys. And please understand, some of these are churches that have some differences of opinion on some minor theological issues. But it's the same gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what unites us together. I also serve with a group that oversees inner city church planting. Our goal is to network churches around the Rochester area to plant gospel-centered churches in the inner city. It's phenomenal to sit with other pastors and to partner together on those things. But I'll tell you, it's hard. Because when there's an event, when there's something coming up, and we've got something going on here at Orchard, it's so tempting to just say, no, I can't do that. We can't really be involved. That money's already committed. And we all have to wrestle with that to say, wait a minute, are we here to build our churches or to build the church of Jesus Christ? The true gospel will be seen in the church. And then look at verse 10. And I think this is a continuation on this theme. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Later on in the service, uh, I think it's during the last song, we'll be collecting our helping hands offering. It's one of the ways as a church we do this. That goes into a fund. It's actually a separate bank account. We use that money to help those who are struggling in our church and community. It's one of the ways we seek to be faithful to this. But understand why this is here. It's not, hey, if you're not doing this, you're not Christian. For them, this was the natural overflow of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The true gospel, though it will show itself in different ministries, there are always some commonalities. And two of those are always love and mercy. It's always a part of the demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe specifically here, though, And and I think as Christians, we need to wrestle with this a little bit better. There is always a call on Christians to help with social problems in the world. Always. But by and large, when you see calls in Scripture to help with those that are hurting and suffering and the poor, it is for the most part directed to those in the church. Now please hear me. I'm not saying don't help anybody else. But here the context is in the church. The way that Paul lived this out was to go around and collect money and take it back to Jerusalem for those in the church. Why? Because when you accepted Jesus Christ, more often than not, you were cut off from all the help that your society had for you. Your family would disown you. The Jewish ways of taking care of you were not open to you anymore. The Gentiles couldn't uh, participate in some of the government programs that they had in their cities or the other religions programs. They were cut off from them. So for the church to live out the gospel, they had to take care of each other. Church, we need to take care of each other in a loving, self-sacrificing way. I'm not saying, please, I always feel like when I say this, people are going to misconstrue this. I'm not saying ignore the world. We don't do that as a church. You shouldn't do that. But if we can't get it right in the church first, then we're not getting it right. We need to display love and mercy to each other. The true gospel will be displayed in a gospel-centered church, not just in the preaching and teaching. I pray, I hope, I think we're getting that pretty right as a church. 
I hope that doesn't sound too selfish. Got a great group of elders around me that keep me in check. But it's easy as a church to say, well, it's being proclaimed, preaching's good, teaching's good. And we just kind of stop there. I think the gospel not only needs to be displayed in preaching and teaching, but then in the vocabulary of the church. How we talk to one another. Are we sharing the gospel with one another? Challenging each other with the gospel? In the conversations we have in the hallways, around our dinner tables, is the gospel part of the vocabulary of the church? Is the gospel part of the habits of the church? When we hear a call to help somebody, do we think, Jesus helped me? Not just they need help, but think of what God has done for you. That's a a gospel-centered habit. Why do we live the way we do? Because of what Jesus has done for us. Not just because it's a good thing. All this goes together to form the culture of a church. The true gospel will shape the overarching culture of a church. One of my favorite things as a leader in this church is when we get to hear the testimony of new members. And it's so often I hear people that have visited the church and they say, I immediately felt welcomed and loved. I hear it all the time. Now, I'm not saying we do a great job with everybody. We blow it sometimes, I'm sure. And maybe we're not hearing from those people. But by and large, I hear, and when I hear that, I hear a gospel-centered culture. Because that didn't come about because we developed a phenomenal welcoming center or system. We, We don't have a phenomenal welcoming system. I'm hoping to work on that. But the system we have is people who love Jesus that love others. That's the system. Man, you can't, you can't create that from scratch. A gospel-centered culture. There is only one true gospel. We need to recognize that gospel will be lived out in very different ministries, different giftedness, and always push to have that on display in the church. Just like Paul, we are under constant pressure to change, add to, and distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. And just like Paul, we need to avoid anything artificial being added to that gospel. Because when we do that, even with the best of intentions... We are destroying the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are hard things to look at because it raises hard questions that I pray we will ask ourselves. That each of us would be vigilant to weigh what we believe against the true gospel in your word. And if we're struggling with that and not sure where to start to gather with other believers, to say, help me. And God, I pray when, as is sometimes necessary, when somebody comes alongside and says, hey, you need to think about this. You need to come back in line in this area. May we receive that with grace. Those are hard but loving times. As a church, I pray that you would keep our leadership, our our doctrine centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. But even as we do that, may the entire culture and relationships among us as a church be centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we be a display of the love and salvation of Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.